But Amos reminded them um, that they have sinned and they too could be judged. And that they themselves would experience the wrath, the anger, the doom, and the distress that accompanies the day of the Lord. So that kind of highlights some of the things we've been looking at the first couple of chapters. So as I said uh, when we started this study that the book of Amos is often overlooked by modern churches because they don't want to deal with some of these issues. It pricks their conscience and the church not only as a whole but the people individually it pricks their conscience when they think about how are they dealing with the needy and the oppressed. It deals with false religion that we also deal with today. It deals with corruption in the church and the ruling class, which we also deal with today. It deals with injustice in our culture and the poor treatment of the needy. And as we travel further in the book of Amos today, we'll see that uh, these things will be again refreshed and brought to our, our mind once again. So if you're not already there, turn to the book of Amos, and we'll be looking at chapter 6. Last week we looked at what I refer to as the first woe towards the end of chapter 5, and that was the woe of judgment, the day of the Lord. It says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness and not light. So today we're going to take a look at the second woe that we find in chapter 6. I'm going to read the whole chapter. We're going to spend most of our time in the first eight verses or so. But uh, to give you the full picture of what's going on in the entire chapter here. The second woe starts off in chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who are carefree in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Some of you may have mocked Samaria. The dignitaries are the foremost of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Kelnan and look and go from there to Amath the Great. Then go to Gath of the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than yours? Are you postponing the day of disaster? And would you bring near the seat of violence? Those who lie on beds of ivory and lounge around on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the fattened cattle, who improvise to the sound of the harp and like David have composed songs for themselves, 
who drink wine from sacred bowls and while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils or lotions. Yet they have not grieved over the collapse of Joseph. Therefore they will go into exile as the, at the head of the exiles, and the revelry of those who lounge around will come to an end. The Lord God has sworn by himself. The Lord God of armies has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and detest his citadels. Therefore, I will give up the city and all it contains. And it will be, if ten men are left in one house, they will die. Then one's uncle or his undertaker will lift up and carry out his bones from the house. And he will say to the one who is in the innermost part of the house, Is anyone else with you? And that one will say, No one. Then he will answer, Keep quiet, for the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. For behold, the Lord is going to command that a great house be smashed to pieces and a small house to rubble. Do horses run on rocks? Or does the plow uh, them with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar and say, Have we not by our own strength taken Kerim for ourselves? For behold, I am going to raise up a nation against you, house of Israel, declares the Lord, and they will torment you from the entrance of Hoth to the brook of Arabah. So the second woe is, is there, it says, woe to those who are carefree in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain or mount of Samaria, the dignitaries of the foremost of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. <clears throat> The first thing that uh, I think we should take notice here in verse 1 is that there is an ease or a rest or a relaxation um, that should not exist among God's people. Woe to those who are carefree in Zion. In itself, ease or rest is not a bad thing. Uh, in fact, there are many verses in the Bible that invite us to rest or, in fact, promise rest at the end of our life's labors. I'll just refer to a couple of them here. Matthew 11, 28-29. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Then there's the Sabbath day rest, found in Hebrews 4, 9, 11. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will be fall by following their example of disobedience. 
And then Revelation 14, 13. A voice from heaven says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And the Spirit answers, They will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. So we see here that there is a type of rest for the godly and righteous. But in Isaiah 57, 20, it says that the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest. So there's clearly a desirable rest associated with godliness uh, that we should seek, a quietness here on earth, and a cessation from our labors in the life yet to come. On the other hand, there's also a wrong kind of rest about which Amos is talking about. It's the rest of indifference. Let me use a, um, a military analogy here. My godson was <coughs> in the Marines and he was fighting in the Iraq War. And I listened to some of his stories. <coughs> and he talked about um, marching through the different uh, cities and, and taking fire from the enemy from the different houses. It's 114 degrees, and he's wearing full body armor and a field pack that probably weighs 50 pounds. And he's sweating inside of a hot helmet. And when he finally drags into camp at the end of the day, and he hears the command at ease and then dismissed, there's nothing wrong with that kind of rest. They have worked hard, and they labored and fought the good fight. But another military example (coughs) took place on December 7, 1941, at Pearl Harbor. The military was at ease at that time. It was a Sunday. Many of the experienced personnel had gone away for the weekend on leave, and others were preparing to go to the beach. So only a skeleton crew of inexperienced uh, sailors were on duty. And even when the radar indicated massive incoming aircraft approaching, the data was ignored and blamed for equipment failure. And when those that did contact their superiors with this information, were rebuffed. Uh, The radar sightings kind of just died in the chain of command as it went up. And for many, this kind of ease proved fatal that day. So as we turn our study to the sixth chapter of Amos, we should ask ourselves, if we are at ease in the bad sense, As Christians, as God's people, are we taking the wrong ease or rest? One pastor characterized American evangelicals as fat sheep. You ever think of yourself that way? As fat sheep? He means that we have grown fat on good biblical teaching, and we're inclined to be lazy 
and inactive. We're at ease when we should be going into battle. Some of us, especially myself, said under good preaching, almost like R&R, like rest and relaxation. We will travel miles to hear a good preacher or go to a family conference only after we see who's preaching on that list that week. While rest and relaxation is part of the program at the family conference, I have to find myself guilty of this. Good preaching of God's word, does it stir me up to action? Or do I just sit there and say amen? And take my ease? Now don't misunderstand me. There are times when we must come apart and rest for a while. After listening to some of you on Wednesday night at prayer meeting, it sounds like there isn't a family among us that doesn't have a need for prayer. We always seem to be battling health issues, caring for parents or other loved ones, employment issues, desire to see family members come to Christ, and of course the spiritual battles involved with our culture. After going through all of that, we deserve it. We need a time of ease. But there's battles to be fought, and we can't take the wrong type of rest. So let me say that if you're a Christian, there's work to be done. And if you're not a Christian, then you are in mortal danger. And the work before you is the greatest work of all. And that is believing in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Now, I've said many times that I felt I was lacking in qualifications to set up here. I feel my biblical scholarship is weak. And as a result, I've said in the past, as I say today, I will climb on the backs of many great teachers that have gone before me. I've never been one to reinvent the wheel if I don't have to. So today's lesson is loosely based on some of broad themes presented by C.H. Spurgeon when he taught over these verses. Spurgeon had imagined that his congregation had fallen asleep in Zion. And he set out to wake them up. He called them by name the presumptuous, the procrastinators, the self-indulgent, the careless, and the indifferent. And as we go through the lesson, we'll see that there's dangers in each one of these categories. So I'm going to pass out a handout here. If you get a gentleman to come up and pass it out, that would be nice. Thank you, sir.
Somebody got a definition of presumptuous or presuming? <laughs> okay. Usually it, it <clears throat> means that you have a set of preconceived ideas or beliefs on a certain subject. Um, Christianity uh, has certain presuppositions. Uh, in the beginning, God. You know, our presupposition is there is God. And we presume that everything else follows from that. In Amos 6.1, we see two presumptions. One is based on religious beliefs or spiritual convictions. And another is based on military advantages. In verse 1, we see... Uh, a people who put their trust in Zion and feel secure on Mount Samaria. Zion is another name for what? What? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay. It's another name for Jerusalem. So when Amos is referring to this, uh, he's speaking about uh, the people in the southern kingdom, Jerusalem is their capital. And so when he refers to Zion or Jerusalem, he's talking to them. And he's saying that they believed or they presumed themselves safe just because they are God's people and just because they live in Jerusalem. They presumed that God's temple uh, would not be destroyed. They presumed that David's throne would be preserved. And these people believed that nothing could ever happen to Jerusalem because God would preserve, preserve it at all costs. They were making some presumptions here. Of course, good example of not reading their Bible, or Old Testament in this case, or listening to the prophets. The prophets spoke against this presumptions. And Jeremiah was especially insistent, saying that it was a misplaced confidence on their part that that's the wrong place to put your faith, is presuming that God will not destroy Jerusalem. In Samaria, the situation was a little different. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. Yet Samaria had no special promises from God. Instead, Samaria trusted in their great military defenses. And this is why Amos speaks of it as Mount Samaria. <clears throat> a fundamental rule of military battles or strategy is to try to fight from the higher ground. Make your enemies struggle against you and your weapons as well as struggle against the terrain around them. And Samaria was built on a high hill that had very steep sides to it. And there was only one winding road to the city at the top. And along the way up that winding road were different military fortifications 
And so this was used to protect the city. So we see here that their presumption is that their military might would take care of them. Their military would protect them. and There would be no harm done to them. So in fact, what we're seeing is that they are trusting not in faith, but in their works, the works of the military, the works of the government to protect them. So in the past lessons from Amos, we have seen the corruption living side by side with the religion of Jerusalem, the injustice and the existence of the hypocrisy of their faith. So how could they assume just because this is Jerusalem and we are God's chosen people, he will not judge us? Or here in Samaria, we are, see the military might is great and thus we are secure and shall never fall. I would say the equivalent of today might run something like this. Hey, we are evangelicals. Or, we are Reformed Baptists. Or, we believe in the 1689 Confession of Faith. So what? These are simply a faith in our own works. In verses 2 and 3 of Amos 6, God challenges those who put their trust in Samaria or Jerusalem to look at other cities Kelnay, Amath, and Gath, each of which had once had a great strong fortification, each of which had once great military people, and each of these cities were destroyed. So God is saying, why should I preserve you if I didn't preserve them? The same question may be asked of us. Why should I preserve you if you trust and faith in your own works or in your church doctrine or in your church attendance or in your church family heritage? I dare say that there are people in hell today that have done more good works than you and I have done but believed in their good works to save them. The second group that Amos addresses here, or that um, Spurgeon talked about, was procrastinator. I fall into this group big time. <laughs> Let's take a look at verse 3. Are you postponing the day of disaster, and would you bring near the seat of violence? Somebody today might say, well, I suppose that if the day of judgment is going to come, it will come. But there's nothing that can be done about it, and besides, it's a far off. I'll deal with some other time later. Reminds me of Scarlett O'Hara. I'll deal with that tomorrow. But the sad thing is that such people do not deal with it later. 
They do the same thing day after day. And barring a miracle that is God's redeeming grace that would draw them into the kingdom, they will continue to do the same thing day after day after day. They are like the Roman governor Felix. Paul preached the good news of Christ to him, yet he replied, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. And there's no record that he ever did send for Paul again. Presumably, Felix died without Christ, without hope, as so many procrastinators do today. We must remind the procrastinator within ourselves, as well as those around us, that judgment may not be as far off as we think. I refer to the story in the New Testament of the rich man who was going to tear down his barns because he had such abundance of crop, he was going to build new ones. And it says, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Judgment may be closer than we think. The story that rich man leads to the next section those who are self-indulgent. Verse 4. Those who lie in beds of ivory and lounge around on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the fattened cattle. We see here people indulging in the luxuries of their wealth. And you've heard it said here before that Money is not necessarily evil. The love of money and how you use that money can be evil. Money can be used for good and for the cause of Christ just as much as anything else can be. But the point of this verse is that the people of wealth, the people of means, uh, are often self-indulgent. After all, I earned it. And I have a right to spend it on myself if I desire to. And they become indifferent to the needs of others. Become self-centered. As a general rule, we can say that the more we have, the less generous we become. Now, it's not my desire to get political here, but to show you how this biblical truth in action applies to us here in America. This biblical truth is evidenced in our own attitude as a nation. We are the richest country in the world, richer than any country in the history of the world. While we give the largest amount in terms of total dollars, when comparing the percentage of how much of our wealth we give, our gross national product, America ranks 20th out of 27 of the world's richest countries, giving to the world's poor. We give about 15 cents per person per day through government aid. We also give about 6 cents per person per day in private donations. 
whereas Finland, Sweden, and Denmark give around 89 cents per person per day in government aid and one cent per person per day for private donations. We have all this wealth and we have not cared for the poor or needy as we should probably do. At the end of World War II, George Marshall was the Secretary of State and he developed what was called the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe after the war. And at that time, the Marshall Plan consisted of 3% of our gross national product to help those rebuild around the world. By 1975, the amount had dropped from 3% to 0.24% of our gross national product. Yet between 1947 and 1975, our wealth as a nation doubled. It got, we became twice as rich, and our concern for others dwindled, and we only gave one-eleventh as much as we used to. If one were to look closely at the foreign aid dollars that we do send, about half of it is in military aid. The sick and the hungry and the poor get what's left over. It certainly seems that the richer we become, the more self-indulgence grows within us. I doubt that even Samaria would have equaled our own self-indulgence here in America. So I ask if God would judge Samaria for its self-indulgence, are we right for God's judgment here? The last of those who are at ease in Zion are portrayed in verse 5 and 6. Who improvised to the sound of the harp and like David have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine from sacred bowls while they anoint themselves with finest of oils, yet they have not grieved over the collapse of Joseph. These are the careless and the indifferent. The careless strums away and drinks wine while using the finest lotions. Next time you watch TV, see how many advertisements are for different kinds of lotions, wrinkle creams, and skin care products. The indifference, they do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. What seems to be the problem with the careless? Well, it certainly isn't music, their music or their instruments or, or their drink or the lotions. <clears throat> David, after all, was a great musician, and he was praised for it. But the problem is that the people gave themselves wholly to these pursuits. That was their entire life, the drinking, this music, the um, luxury, life of luxury. Well, these are fine things. They are not the necessary things of life. 
When people are consumed by trivial, they lose all sight of what is really important, what is really necessary. They do not have the thoughts of their soul in mind. That's what's important. What good is all this stuff if you lose your soul? How typical is this of our culture? We're so self-absorbed in other things. The most recent survey that I've seen in the group between the ages of 12 and 25 spends seven hours a day on video games, social media, and television. Are they any worse than these people in Samaria? And the indifference, their sin is that they do not grieve for Joseph. Joseph is another name for the country of Israel as a whole. It means the descendants of Joseph. The people do not care about the declining state of those people around them. Let's take a look at verse 8. This ties into the careless and the indifferent. The Lord God has sworn by himself, the Lord God's armies has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and detest his citadels. Therefore, I will give up the city and all it contains. Verse 8 kind of describes these people are full of pride. They care more about themselves than other people. Pride, again, is described as the root cause of main sin. It causes people to act in different ways. Suppose you're a Christian at ease in Zion. Suppose you find yourself in one of those groups that I just described. Where do you go from there? What follows from the pride that has made you complacent or consumed with this evil ease I've been describing? Well, the first, the first thing is that you become insensitive. You become insensitive to the needs of others. Your needs are met. Others lack many of life's necessities. If you could, I mean, if you would, you could help them with your resources. But be, you become insensitive to their needs. You're not willing to do that because you think you deserve everything you have. That's pride. You deserve everything you have. They deserve nothing of yours. The second thing you become is irresponsible not only to the needy, but also to your own family, to your neighbors, to your church, your city, your government. There is work to do. The work never ceases. But it's much easier to enjoy your abundance, to shut the doors and isolate yourself from the problems around you. Why should I sacrifice my ease for the good of others? That's pride speaking. 
When problems are not dealt with by compassionate Christians, then evil matters. Evil enters in and affects everyone, both good and bad alike. For now and in future generations to come, if we don't act compassionately towards others. After a while, the third thing that hits you, you become oblivious to the dangers that are taking place because of your ease. When you're not involved in the world around you, it's easy to fall in the evil that you let enter. Remember King David? He was supposed to go to war. Instead, he took his ease and then sent Joab. He was oblivious to the danger when taking his ease. I guess we'll have to ask ourselves, are we Christians? Are we um, oblivious to the dangers when taking our ease? Are we at ease in Zion? Remember to take care, lest you fall. Wake up and see the work that needs to be done. Let's get on with it. Hopefully, preaching just stirs you up to go out and think about your Christian duty to your fellow man. Be as your master Jesus Christ was, who came to serve and not to be served. This is the type of people God will honor. Any thoughts or comments or questions about taking ease in Zion? Oblivious to the
good point. Anybody else? Well, if not, uh, Brother Ken, would you close this in word of prayer? Amen. Amen. Thank you.